Put your husband where your heart is, the irresistible wife. Now, we just saw that husbands are called by God to love and understand. God calls wives to submit and to admire or respect. And look, I understand the pushback when it comes to the word submit. The culture thinks we are Neanderthals, that we are cavemen and cavewomen who have just not come into the modern world. It's just like this, be honest. Some of the conversations we're having today about gender. Uh, I read an article on the way over this morning, religious news service, that says that uh, evangelicals are, uh, young evangelicals are fleeing our churches. Uh, before I go on, it was interesting that the writer cited two churches that decided to become LBGTQ plus affirming and accepting, and it split their churches in half. They lost half of their folks because of folks who said, we love homosexuals, we love the bisexuals, we love the transgender, we love these people. And loving them means telling the truth. And loving them means helping them understand God's beautiful, good design for gender and sex, which in the Bible are synonymous. They're, they're not separated. And uh, listen, if we have people flee our churches over that, then they flee our churches. We can't compromise God's word. We just can't because then you become your own authority and at that point, the game's over. The game's over. And bottom line, guys, it's going to come down ultimately for all of us. We're going to find out whether or not the Bible really is our ultimate source of authority or not. And it's going to be painful. I've got a dear, dear, dear friend now. Uh, I've known his son since he was three years old. He's just turned 39 and he had a coming out about his being gay. And he has basically walked away from everything his father, a, a well-known Baptist preacher, taught him all of his life. And uh, his dad is not compromising his love for his son, and he is not compromising his absolute commitment to the Word of God. And so we need to understand, where did you get this idea of submission? From the Bible. We didn't come up with it. God came up with it. And it's right there in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit to every man? No. Submit to your own husbands. And here's the key phrase, as to the Lord. In other words, when a woman submits to her husband, she's actually submitting to Christ and she is honoring him. Now, here's his rationale for saying this. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let me unwrap that very quickly. First of all, submission is not inferiority. Submission is not inferiority. So how do you know that? Well, because God the Son submits to God the Father in the uh, act of redemption. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. I am fully God. I am equal to my Father in essence. But he also says in the Gospel of John, the Father is greater than I am. Wow. He also says in the Gospel of John, I only do that which my Father shows me. What is he teaching us? You can be equal in essence and submissive in your assignment. And so, ladies, are you equal in essence to your husband as an image bearer of God? Absolutely, in every way. Your submission is simply your assignment. And furthermore, your ultimate role model is the Lord Jesus who submits willingly and joyfully to his Father. So there is no 
inferiority in submission. Secondly, there's an interesting phrase there at the end of verse 24. So wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now question, does that mean everything without any qualification? And I think the clear answer is no. No. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll apply it to my own marriage. If you met my wife, Charlotte, she would say to you, I gladly and joyfully, most of the time, submit to Danny. But if I ever have to make a choice between submitting to the Lord Jesus and submitting to Danny, Danny will lose every single time because he is not my Lord, Jesus is. He is not my ultimate authority, Jesus is. And so here's what I would want to say to you ladies. If your husband were to ask you to do something that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, I think that you must tell him, no, I love you, I want to honor you, but my first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. And so if those conditions enter in, you have to say no. But I would say this, if it doesn't fall under those particular categories, I believe God would ask you to trust him and honor your husband with your submission. Now, here's something very fascinating. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter gives us an example of a saved woman who is married to an unsaved husband. All right, get the picture now. Saved wife, unsaved husband. What does Peter tell the saved wife to do with her unsaved husband? He says, submit. Saved wife, submit to unsaved husband that you might win him to Christ without a word. And what is he teaching us there? You'll never nag or gripe a man into the kingdom. It's not going to happen. But because of the transformed life that you live because of Christ in you, you become so attractive and so beautiful, he is drawn to the gospel and drawn to the Savior by your life. And here's my point. If God tells a saved wife to submit to an unsaved husband, how much more should a saved wife submit to a saved husband? And again, there's no inferiority. It is simply the God-ordained assignment that he has given you, all right? So you honor him with your submission. Secondly, you also honor him with your admiration. Look at the end of verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects. The idea of admiration, I think, is woven into that, that she respects, that she admires, that she honors her husband. So, you have a twofold assignment just like your husband. You are to submit and you are to respect or admire. Now, what does that look like fleshed out in everyday life? Well, if you look on your notes, you see five things that I've given you under number two there, but you have the same five things just below that in paragraph form with the title, Five Ways to Bless Your Husband. And so I want to walk quickly through these. And here's something I want to say to you ladies. Number one, I do believe this list is correctly prioritized. In other words, I think number one is number one, and number two is number two, and so on. But there's a footnote that I will bring up at the end because I believe over the years of living together in marriage, the ordering shifts just a little bit, but in a very, very, very 
important way. So just know there's a footnote coming at the end. So how is it that you can bless your husband? Well, number one, you bless him by giving him your admiration and respect. And look at the part that's underlined. Be proud of your husband, not out of duty, but as an expression of sincere admiration for the man you love and with whom you have chosen to share your life. Now, again, let me make it personal. I think I'm pretty normal in this particular area. I like to be liked. I like to be liked. I hope that when this weekend is over that you say to Paul and the others, hey, I'm glad you invited Danny. I enjoyed hearing him teach. I learned some things. Uh, If he were my next-door neighbor, I don't think I would be upset about that. That would be okay with me. I mean, I think I'm pretty normal. I like to be liked, all right? But there's a sense, and I don't mean to be unkind to any of you, but there's a sense in which I don't give a rip what any of you think about me. I don't care. As long as I know that my wife, and I'll be honest now, my kids and my grandkids love me, believe in me, and they're proud of me, especially my wife. I cannot explain it. But outside the Lord Jesus, what Charlotte Aiken thinks about me matters to me more than anybody else. Again, painful lesson whereby I learned this. A number of years ago, I was preaching at a college in Texas, and uh, I was on staff. At the, I was actually on the faculty. And because at our chapel over here sat about 30 PhDs, my colleagues, the passage I decided to preach on was Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Many of you would know at least 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and on and on and on. Well, because I was preaching to a bunch of ministerial students and a bunch of faculty, no exaggeration, studied 50 hours for that one sermon. 50 hours. I bet I read 20 commentaries, six journal articles, listened to 10 different guys preach on the text. Uh, I did detailed Greek word studies of the Greek words kanao, harparkan, harpagmas, I talked about the intricacies of what is known as canonic Christology and the hypostatic union. And I'm sure all of you are just being abundantly blessed by what I'm telling you at this particular moment. So I did all that, shared all that in my sermon, all of my colleagues, thumbs up, woof, 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 great job. Boy, you masterfully handled the text. Well, about six months later, we go to Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from and where Charlotte's from, to see our family. And a friend of mine who pastors a country church in Griffin, Georgia, about an hour south of Atlanta, said, hey, Brother Danny, know you're coming to Georgia. Why don't you come down to Mount Gilead Baptist Church? That's how he talked. And preach for me on Sunday night. And I said, I'll be glad to. Christmas time, got a great Christmas message, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So I went down there to that country church. And guess what I did? Like an idiot. I preached that same sermon exactly the way I preached it back in that college chapel in Dallas. I talked to those sweet country folks about canonic Christology and the hypostatic union. I shared the insights of Kanao, Harparkan, and Harpagmas. Got through, got in the van to go back up to Atlanta where my mom and dad live, and I did what every preacher on the planet does. All of you know this. Every preacher, when he gets in the car to go home, looks at his wife, and he says, Honey, how'd I do? Because all y'all lie. Y'all lie. We get at the back, good message, Pastor. You don't have a clue about what I said. Yeah, but it's a good message. You would never say the truth. You'd never say, you know what? Man, that was way over my head. You'd never say, have you ever thought about a second job? (laughs) 
I mean, it's the rare bird that will say something negative. It's just because you want to be sweet, especially Southern folks. We just want to be sweet. So we get in the van, look at my wife, honey, how'd I do? And her exact words were, quote, oh, um, you, you did fine. Now, let's unwrap that. Number one, anytime anybody starts a sentence with the word, oh, they mean, oh, no. I wish you had not asked that question. And they're now trying to find a way to speak the truth without just, to just pulverizing you. Secondly, her tone of voice indicated to me, fine does not mean fine. Fine meant bad. You crashed and burned. It was not a pretty day at Mount Gilead. So I fired back. What do you mean I didn't do good? Which I know is bad grammar. You don't care about grammar at a moment like this. What do you mean I didn't do good? She said to me, well, honey, I, I didn't say that. I said, well, yeah, you did. You said fine, but you didn't mean fine. Now, I want you to tell me the truth. I can take it. Now, I was lying, of course, but I said, I can take it. Tell me the truth. And so she said to me, well, sweetheart, if you really want to know what I think, I, I think you forgot who you were preaching to. I mean, these are just country folks. I mean, these are like her exact words, normal people. I mean, sweetheart, you used some big words tonight. I mean, you used some words I've never heard before. And I responded. Well, if you'd gone to college like me, you'd know those words. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's, it's like hanging a curveball. I tried to grab it, and it was too late. It was selling in the upper deck because she then looked at me, and she said, fine. And fine didn't mean fine then either. <laughs> Since you care so much about what I think, why don't you just shut up and leave me alone? And I did not have to leave her alone. She left me alone for about a week. It was not a happy time around our house again. Now, you can say, well, you acted like an idiot. Guilty as charged. Well, why'd you say something so stupid? It hurt my feelings. You see, you can tell me I did wonderful. I don't care. She tells me I did wonderful. I'm good to go. And listen, because I do what I do, people shoot at me. They, they just do. They, they write me ugly emails, and they say mean things on Twitter and Facebook. But I'll tell you something. I don't care. I don't give a rip. Now, I don't lose any sleep over that junk. Because I have a woman that loves me, I have four sons that love me, I have four daughter-in-laws that love me, and I have 14 grandkids that love their granddaddy. My world is good. Because the, if the people who know you best love you most, who gives a rip about the naysayers out there who don't? But you need to understand, your husband cares a ton about what you think about him. And you bless him with your admiration and respect. Now, number two, you bless him by providing sexual fulfillment. Become an excellent sexual partner to him. Study your own response to recognize and understand what brings out the best in you. And here's the key word, communicate. Communicate this information to your husband and together. Learn to have a sex relationship that you both find repeatedly satisfying and enjoyable. Now, it probably would not surprise most of you that in survey after survey after survey, when men are asked, what do you want most out of marriage, sexual fulfillment is number one. But it's not. Now, it's a close second. I mean, it's a, it's a photo finish, but it's not number one. It's number two. You say, how do you know? Because this. A man finds it impossible to believe that his wife admires and respects him if she won't be intimate with him. He finds it impossible to believe that you admire him and respect him if you're not willing to be intimate with him. The two go together. So sexual fulfillment, very important. But it actually feeds and nourishes, number one, admiration and respect. Now, we're all big people here this morning, and I'm not going to get X-rated or even R-rated, but I do want to talk about this area for just a moment, okay, so that we are on the page, same page together. So understand a couple of things biblically about sex. Number one. Sex was God's idea. 
not your idea, not my idea. Sex was God's idea. And personally, I think God was having a really great day when he came up with the sex thing. That's just my own opinion. But it was God's idea. Furthermore, God gave us very clear parameters in which to enjoy this wonderful gift. It's called marriage between a man and a woman. But here's the deal. Even though it's perfectly designed by God, we come to this area from radically opposite perspectives. And Gary Smalley, I think, gave us the best analogy when he said, well, you know, when it comes to intimacy in marriage, men are very much like microwave ovens. But women are a whole lot more like crockpots. And I didn't say crack pots, I said crock pots. Now you say, well, what does he mean by that? Now this is very important. And listen, how many of you in here have children? How many of you have teenagers or adolescents? All right, so here we go. God made men as creatures of sight. Men are moved by what they see. And when a man or a teenage boy sees what he likes, He's like a microwave oven. Boom. He can heat up, and it takes him absolutely no time at all. Women, on the other hand, are creatures of the ear and of the heart. And they're not like microwave ovens. They're like crockpots who have to kind of simmer and simmer and even simmer, simmer, simmer a while before they are ready. And so even though everything fits perfectly, we come to this from very different perspectives, all right? So that's one thing. Second thing, the odds that you and your mate have identical sexual appetites is very unlikely. But that you have compatible appetites is almost certain. Let me say that again. Identical, probably not. Compatible, almost certain. You say, well, how would we know? Because of that underlined word in number two, communicate, talk, understand. This came to me from just a regular normal couple a number of years ago. I had a friend that was involved in marriage counseling. And so he shared a story with me one day. He said, uh, I had this lady come see me. And uh, she shared with me that she was uh, there at the urging of another friend because she was thinking about uh, separating from her husband. And so we sat down, and I said, well, talk to me about what's the problem in your marriage. And she said, well, I'm really embarrassed to be here because I love my husband. He loves me in so many ways. He's a wonderful husband, and he's a great dad. But there's one area in our marriage that is just a constant source of conflict and fighting. And, I mean, I'm, I really feel like I'm on the verge of an emotional breakdown, and I'm just thinking maybe some time apart might help. And so he said, okay, well, what is this area? And she said, well, it's our sex life. It's just, it's, just, it's just a disaster. She said, my husband's a maniac. He's always pressuring me to have sex. I mean, it's like 24-7, at least the way it feels. And if I were not saying, now listen very carefully, if I were not saying no as often as I do, we'd just be having sex all the time. And it's become such an area of contention, I just think separating might, might be helpful. Well, this friend of mine is a really good marriage counselor. And he's mischievous, too, so I think that helps make him a good marriage counselor. That's my own opinion. So he said to uh, this lady, he said, well, can I, can I make a suggestion? Can I, can I give you an assignment for one week just to see if maybe we don't have to make this drastic step of separation? And she said, well, what is it? And so this was on a Friday, and he said to her, well, can you get rid of the kids over the weekend? She said, yes. He said, good, get rid of them. 
what time does your husband get home from work? She said, he gets home about 6 o'clock. He said, great. When he walks through the door, you grab him by the ears and you drag him to the bedroom and you have sex with him. You can feed him some supper and then after supper, let it be dessert. Drag him back again. <laughs> then if you can, one more time before you go to sleep. Wake him up Saturday morning at 6 o'clock. Do it again. Feed him some breakfast. He'll need it. Then again after breakfast. Feed him lunch after lunch. And basically he said, for the next week, I want, this is his word, not mine. I want you to become a huntress. And I want you to have sex with your husband as much as you can. Can you do that? Now I'm a little offended by this. But her response was, I can do anything for one week. So she goes home on Friday. She's supposed to call the next Friday. Well, she doesn't. She calls him on Monday. And she says, I don't know what you were trying to do, but I think it worked. My husband's over in the corner of the bedroom, and he is waving a white handkerchief at me. <laughs> she said, uh, he has a real scared look in his eye. And then she said, we've just had a good long laugh and a good long cry, and we both feel really dumb. Because something, this is her words, something that should have drawn us closer together for 18 years years, nearly tore us apart, all because we didn't talk. She said, you know what we discovered? And this is where I got it, not from some fancy, fancy book. She said, we discovered after we talked, we don't have identical appetites, but we do have compatible appetites. And if we just talked, we'd have known this years ago. So the odds of it being identical, no. Compatible, yes. So then the question rises, well, then how do we find that happy range for the both of us in this area of intimacy? Well, I've given you, like in the previous notes for the women, I've given you a couple of pages from uh, Gary Chapman's book, Toward a Growing Marriage, suggestions that husbands have made to wives about how to make romance more and sex relations more meaningful. Uh, some of them are really interesting. Number one, be attractive at bedtime. Nothing in the hair or strange on the face. Wear something besides granny gowns and pajamas. And I would add, sweats fall into that same category. But they keep me warm. We'll keep you warm. Number three, be innovative and imaginative. Number six, I mean, men are creatures of sight. Look at this. Dress more appealingly when I'm at home. Uh, no house coats, slippers, etc. Number seven, do things to catch my attention. Remember, a man is easily excited by sight. I mean, we're such one-track minds. It's pathetic. Number eight, communicate more openly about sex. So there's just some very basic, simple things that, that men would like for their wives to do. But go over to the page where you see it says, nourishing your love. Drop down just below that, and you'll see a thing where it says, what happy couples say about sex. Now, this was actually in a Reader's Digest article some years ago. Came across it. I thought, wow, this is good. And it basically lines up with the Bible. And then I added two at the end. So the first ten are Reader's Digest. The last two are Danny Aiken. But just look at what happy the survey work was done. And these were people that say, we like really, really, really enjoy our intimate life. So what do they do? Number one, they make sex a priority. It is important to them. Number two, they make time for sex. Now, let me just say this. Different seasons of life require different strategies. Different seasons of life require different strategies. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. When you first get married, it's just you and your mate. Ain't no kids. You just have sex anytime you want, all the time. Well, but something happens out of this wonderful thing called sex. Giant 
cockroach creatures called children emerge. And listen, children do not help your sex life. Have you ever read the Song of Solomon? Children aren't mentioned one time in eight chapters. Not one time. Because kids don't help your sex life, all right? I mean, we get married. We're we, we having a great time. Kids show up. Not just kids. We start with twins. And they were evil. They were evil. I understand why some animals eat their young. They were evil. They wouldn't sleep, and they got up at alternating times. One would wake up at 1, one would wake up at 3. One would wake up at 5, one would wake up at 7. My wife is beautiful, but she likes she'd been hit by a Mack truck. We went to church one True story. Went to church one Sunday. Her, her blouse is not buttoned like it should be. Hair's wild. Mascara's messed up. Sweet lady walks up and said, honey, are you okay? Oh, my gosh. The tears exploded. By God's grace, she had had twins. And so she said, well, they won't sleep. They wake up. She said, sweetheart, when one wakes up, you wake the other one up. And Charlotte's like still crying. Well, that would be so mean. She said, not as mean as what they're doing to you. <laughs> well, at least we got the one to five. I mean, that's not great, but that's better than one to three to five, you know. So God's, but sex, are you kidding me? We barely could have time to get out of bed. So, but thankfully, they, they, they grow up. They become adolescents, which means put locks on the doors. Teenagers, keep the locks on the doors. But then a wonderful thing happens. They leave. Oh, I know some of you, oh, don't bring up that. I'm so terrified about the empty nest. The empty nest. Listen, I nearly became Baptocostal. They were so excited when they left. Praise God, they're gone. And now, listen, when they leave, it's like a honeymoon all over again, but this time you got money. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I mean, you first get married, you're poor, you're dirt poor, but now they're gone. You got money. They're not around. It's really, really neat. But the different seasons of life require different strategies. And it's not going to be the same all the time. Oh, we just have sex four or five times a week. Well, not all the time. Not when the kids show up. Not when you've got special things going on in your lives. So you have different strategies and expectations as you move through the seasons of marriage. All right? Number three, stay emotionally intimate. Number four, know how to touch and what works. I'd say this way, what pleases your mate? And how do you know that? By talking, by communicating. Number five, they keep romance alive by meeting each other's needs. We saw seven for the wives. We're walking through five now for the men. Number six, they keep their sexual anticipation alive. Number seven, they know how to play and foreplay both in and out of bed. To say it in a playful way, happy girl outside the bedroom, happy guy inside the bedroom. Of course, she'll be happy too, but if you create that environment of romance... Sexual union happens more often and with greater satisfaction. Number eight, tied right in. They know how to talk to each other. Number nine, stay with me. They remain lovers and friends. Now, I can tell you this, and many others in this room can too. The longer you're married, the more that friend thing matters. The more that friend thing matters. Number ten, they maintain a sense of humor. And they know how to laugh. And I added especially at themselves. Ha healthy marriages don't have mates that laugh at their mates. Healthy marriages have mates who laugh at themselves. Number 11, they want to please each other. They want to please each other. Their goal is not to get, their goal is to give. And then number 12, they do cherish each other as a sacred and precious gift from God. So there are some basic things that I believe will help us have the sexually satisfying marriage that God intends for all of us to enjoy, all right? Go back to our five things. Number three, cultivate home support. 
Create a home that offers him an atmosphere of peace, quiet, and refuge. Manage the home in the care of the children. The home should be a place of rest and rejuvenation. And remember, the wife, the mother, is the emotional hub of the family. Now, this is going to be the most painful part for the ladies. So let me just go ahead and preface it. Ladies, we all know the uh, colloquial saying in the home, if mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody going to be happy. Now, that may not be fair, but it is absolutely true. You're basically the thermostat of the house. If your personal thermostat goes up to 90, 95, or 100, it ain't just hot for you. Oh, my Lord, it's hot for everybody. Get you back down to 70 or, praise God, 65 or 60, it's cool for everybody. Now, again, I learned this by just in my own marriage. Now, I need to be fair here. My poor wife, Charlotte, for whatever reason by God, was condemned to live in a male dormitory of five boys, yes, five boys, counting myself, for about 20 years. I mean, think about being the only woman, five boys in your life. I mean, I came, true story, came home one day from work, walked in the house. She walked up to me and said, let me tell you something. Boys will do things a dog won't do. <laughs> to this day, I don't know what they did, and I don't want to know. I'm sure she was telling the truth. But I also learned this, one woman can handle five men. One woman can handle five men. True story, came home from work one day, got out of the car. Before I could get into the house, all four boys came out on the front porch, shut the door, said, Daddy, we need to talk. And see, here's what we'd come up in my house. We came up with a code. When Mama was having like a bad day, we would simply say, Mama's got that look in her eye. And then later, we didn't even have to talk. We just walked through the house and go, and that was our way of warning one another, just be careful, be cautious. So they come out on the front porch, and they say, Daddy, we need to talk. And Timothy, my youngest, the verbal one, said, Dad, the look's back, and it's back big time. This time, you need to go in there and do something. So I said, all right, let me go check out. So I went in. She was in the kitchen, working at the, back, uh, at the sink, back of the wall, looked in there, never said a word. Just by the way she was conducting her business at that sink with that body language, I knew, yep, she's got the look. I didn't say a word. I quietly backed out, went back outside, got the boys in a male huddle, and I said, yeah, you're right, uh, she, she's got the look. And again, Timothy said, well, fine, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, guys, here's Dad's counsel, every man for himself. <laughs> I said, I'm going to leave her alone. I suggest you leave her alone, and here's the deal. If you cross her path and get in trouble, don't call for me. I'm not coming. We, 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 we are all on our own, all right? So I want to be fair before I go on. Ladies, good godly women who love Jesus can have a bad day, okay? Good godly women who love Jesus can have a bad day, all right? But a bad day is one thing. A bad life is something altogether different. And here's the deal. You are the key to the emotional health of your home. And here's the key to that. Your husband cannot stand to be around a griping, nagging, whiny woman. So how do you know that? Those proverbs under number three. I didn't write that, by the way, God did. So if you're mad, take it up with God. God said a man would rather live in the desert, on the roof, or in the attic then with, King James said, a contentious woman. I like that, a contentious woman. That just means you gripe, you nag, and you whine. And men can't stand it. 
So you say, well, what will men do if they have a wife like that? I'll tell you exactly what they'll do. They'll take fight or they will flight. They'll fight or flight. Fight or flight. Now let me unwrap that very quickly. Most men don't physically fight with their wives. We know this documented fact, sociologically researched. Spousal abuse is twice as common among cohabitors. So you want to get beat up, ladies? Cohabit. You'll, you'll double the odds that you get beat up by the man you're living with. But even in marriage, it happens too often. And men that beat their wives ought to go to jail, lock the, key, lock the door, throw the key away, let them die in there as far as I'm concerned. They witness to them before they die, but just get rid of them. I, I have no patience for men that hit women. So most men don't hit their wives. So they might fight with you verbally for a little while, but they won't do that very long either. You say, why not? Because y'all whoop us. Y'all whoop us. We, we can't beat y'all in verbal battles. You say, why? It's very simple. Documented fact. Average male can produce 10 to 12,000 words a day. Average female, ready? 20 to 25,000 words a day. With gust up to 50. I'm just kidding about the gust. That, that's a joke. But I, I still bet it might be true. But anyway, you are verbal animals. We're not. So we can't beat you verbally. So if we can't fight you, what will we do? We'll take flight. And we walk away. We become workaholics. We become those guys that have to be out on the lake fishing or out in the woods hunting, which I still don't. I know, I'm in East Tennessee, so I know I'm on sacred territory here. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, I really don't. I mean, here's how I thought. Deer hunting, you deer hunters. I mean, good night. Option number one, up in a stand in a tree or somewhere, 30 degrees, freezing your tail off trying to kill Bambi, which I still can't get over killing Bambi. I just don't understand that. Option number two, back home in a warm bed, hugging your woman. This is like a no-brainer. I mean, this isn't hard. This, this isn't hard, all right? But some guys just say, yeah, well, you don't in my house. So I go hunting. I go fishing. I play with my raggedy tag body. I play softball in the spring and softball in the summer and softball in the fall. Had a friend, Wake Forest. Could never get him at home. Call, call, call. Never home, never home, never home. Ran into the drugstore one day. I said, man, I've been trying to call you. You're never at home. He says, well, I play softball three, three teams in the spring, three teams in the summer, three teams in the fall. Six nights, sometimes seven nights a week. I said, why in the world would you be so stupid? I did. So stupid to do something like that. He said, because the quietest place on the planet for me is left field at a softball game. And then he actually threw it in my face. You do marriage conferences, don't you? I said, well, yeah. Don't you talk about men needing a place of peace and quiet? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, it ain't at my house. And here's the deal, ladies. That's exactly where it ought to be. The, the sweetest, quietest, most peaceful and rejuvenating place on the planet ought to be your home. And I tell people, I'm not at home right now because Charlotte's not with me. But if she were with me, I'd be perfectly at home over there in that hotel room because wherever she is, I'm at home with her. But you're the key to providing that, and a man needs that. In fact, he craves it, and you're the key to cultivating that home support. Number four, strive to be an attractive wife. Pursue inner and outer beauty in that order. Cultivate a Christ-like spirit in your inner self and keep yourself physically fit with diet and exercise and wear your hair and your makeup and clothes in a way that your husband finds attractive and tasteful. Let your husband be pleased and proud of you in public, but also in private. Now, let me unwrap this very quickly. The Bible speaks of a woman's attractiveness in a fourfold way. Inner, outer, public, private. Inner, outer, public, private. Inner beauty. 
cultivating that Christ-like spirit so that on the inside you are a radiant, beautiful, godly woman. And here's the wonderful thing about that. That inner beauty, number one, lasts forever. And number two, when you are pretty on the inside, you become prettier on the outside. That is a fact. I am thinking of a lady right now. She just turned 70. Known her since she was in her 30s. We went to church together. First time I saw her, I didn't think, you know, wow, she's stunning. But over the years, she has grown to me to be one of the most beautiful women I think I've ever seen in my life. Now, I'm not talking about sexually attractive to her. No. I'm just telling you, she is a radiant, beautiful, godly woman. I think she's very attractive because she's so pretty in here, she became prettier out here. On the other hand, you know this, I've met some women that are drop-dead gorgeous. I thought they were stunning until I got to know them. And they were not very pretty in here. And after a while, they weren't very pretty out here either. And so inside beauty lasts forever. And furthermore, it will make you prettier out here. But remember, your husband's a creature of sight. And you want to be attractive outwardly. And listen, go through the Song of Solomon. Three times in that book, now I love this, stay with me. Three times in the Song of Solomon, he describes his wife, Shulamith, from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. And you know one thing and one thing you don't know. What you do know is he thinks she is drop-dead gorgeous. You also discover the longer they're married, the more pretty he thinks she is. Second thing is that you don't know, you have no clue what she looked like. Because he's using this, this poetic, rustic, uh, agrarian language. You know, funny things too. You got a nose like a tower. And your, and your teeth look like sheep that have been washed. And, uh, you know, your hair looks like a bunch of goats running down a hill. I don't go home and tell your wife she's got goat hair. Don't, don't do that. It's not going to work for you. But in that day, she would have, I mean, she was a, first of all, she was a country girl. And if you've ever been to Israel and seen black goats running down the hill and the sun hits them, it's like a, and he does it on their wedding night, by the way, like they're letting her hair down and her beautiful black hair is flowing down. He said, well, you like those beautiful goats that run down the hills up there where you're from in Lebanon. And she was like, she loved that stuff, all right? But you don't know what she looks like. But you do know that he thought she was drop-dead gorgeous. So he wants you to be publicly pretty, but he also wants you to be privately pretty. And I don't make you ladies mad. I'm not going to stay here long. But I do need to say something to all you ladies here this morning about a very evil, wicked thing that I think was created in the place where the devil's going to spend the rest of his life. And it's called a, a flannel gown. I need to just talk to you for a moment about the, the evil, wicked, demonic nature of, of flannel gowns. And while I'm at it, cotton socks. They, they, they go together. So it's a tandem deal. Ladies, from my heart, there's no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. It, it doesn't exist. So how do you know? I've looked. I've looked. I've, I've been looking for years. I, I used to go into uh, Victoria's Secrets. Uh, I still go into Victoria's Secrets. It's still around. I used to go into Fredericks of Hollywood. I'd be careful quickly in and out, but I'd go in just for the heck of it. Say, hey, guys, I want to buy my wife a sexy flannel gown. And they're like, are you an idiot? Flannel gowns aren't sexy. And I said, I know. And I'd leave so I had you know, more data. I'd go even to Fredericks of Hollywood. They don't, I mean, Victoria's Secrets, they don't have one either. There's no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. They, they do not exist. I, listen, I was at a church one time in Mississippi, and I shared this insight. Afterwards, like we take our break, this little five-foot-two lady, young girl, probably in her 20s, came up to me mad as a hornet. I mean, red-faced, gets right in my face and says, my husband wants to talk to you. And she walks off, and I'm like, good night. 
What, what did I say that got that kind of response? Well, here he comes. He ain't mad. No, that boy's going from this here to this here. Gives me a big bear hug. Says, man, where you been all my life? Why don't you come over to the house tonight? We're going to have a granny gown bonfire. I'm burning them off. <laughs> now, I've only had one man in my life disagree with me. One. I forget where I was. I was speaking to church. Guy comes up to me, about 85 years old. Old codger. Now, listen, I don't think every man that's 85 is an old codger, but he was. Had that devilish twinkle in his eye. You could just see him walking up. You said, this guy's mischief. And then he was. I mean, very mischievous. Comes up to me, not exaggerating any bit of this. He hits me in the ribs with his fist. It hurt. I mean, I'm like, what the heck is wrong with this old guy? Hits me in the ribs. Says, you're wrong about them flannel gowns. I said, excuse me? Rubbing my ribs. He said, my old, that's how he said it. My my old lady has a sexy flannel gown. And I'm like, well, sir, I don't know how to respond to that. I've never had a man in my life tell me that he likes his wife's flannel gown. And he fires back. I didn't say I like it. I love it. He said, it's old. It's got holes in it. When I go to bed at night, it's like going treasure hunting that flannel. I mean, listen, (laughs) nobody ever embarrasses me anymore, ever. But he got me. He he knew because I turned red in the face. And so he hit me in the ribs again. said, get your old lady a holy flannel gown and you'll like it too. So if you get one with holes all in it, he might make an exception. I'm moving on. We need to. Number five. Bless your husband by becoming his best friend. Bless your husband by becoming his best friend. Now, here's my footnote, and then we're going to be in our final break. I got married 21 and 19. Did I marry my best friend? Well, I didn't know that. I married a girl that was beautiful, a girl that was nice and sweet, wanted to be married to me, wanted to be a mother of a bunch of kids, was fully uh, uh, committed to ministry, just, you know, all those good things. But I didn't think I was marrying my best friend. But today, if you were to ask me, who is the best friend you have in all the world? That's easy. My wife, Charlotte. Now, I've got some good friends, all males, that I confide in and so on. But my very, very best friend is my wife, Charlotte. When I do premarital counseling today, if you come to me and you're thinking about getting married, the first thing I do is always uh, find out where you are in your relationship with Jesus. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I, I share the gospel. But then I talk about, and I'm going to get in the last session, I talk about some areas in your marriage that always need to be monitored. Then at the end of the first session, I always do this. I'll look at the uh, bride-to-be usually first. And I'll say, let me ask you a question. Is he your best friend? And unfortunately, nine out of ten times they'll say this, oh, I love him. And I'm like, that's wonderful. But that wasn't my question, so let's try again. Do you like him, and is he your best friend? And then I look at the guy, the groom-to-be, and I say, let me ask you, do, do, do you like her? And is she your best friend? And if they can't say that, then what I tell them is, all right, here's what we want to work on leading up to your wedding. I want you to begin to take steps and begin to work to grow to be one another's best friend. And here's why. If you grow to be best friends, I can promise you two things. Number one, your marriage will be a blessing. And number two, your marriage will go the distance. They say, how can you do that? I said, because best friends like hanging out with their best friends. And best friends don't give up on their best friends. And if you will work to grow to be best friends, your marriage will be a blessing. In your marriage, it will go the distance. Now, here's my footnote, and we take our break. I told you I think my list is correctly prioritized. 
with this little caveat. The longer you're married, the more number five starts climbing the ladder. Number four, number three, number two, and eventually it becomes number one. In other words, what's the best way that you can bless your husband? Being his best friend. And here's the beauty of that. If you and your husband are best friends, he will find you attractive. And if you and your husband are best friends, that home will be a place of rest and rejuvenation. If you're best friends, you will be lovers. And if you're best friends, he will know that you admire him and respect him. So I guess I could say if Paul had told me when I got here this morning, something's come up, uh, Danny, you got three minutes. Okay, I can do that. You want to have the kind of marriage that God will honor and bless? Number one, make sure you know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. And number two, just work really hard at growing to be best friends. Because if you do, all these other things, I promise you, will fall perfectly into place. So, Father, thank you so much for these ladies. Thank you for wives and mothers and what they contribute to marriage and family. Uh, Lord, they are so invaluable in so many ways. Help these ladies, Lord, to love you above all things. And then out of that, to love and help and come alongside their husbands because their husbands need them. Uh, you said it. I didn't. It's not good that a man is alone. I will make him a helper who will perfectly complement him. You know what is best. And so, Lord, may we follow your uh, guidance and may we obey your word. Bless us, Lord, as we take just a short break and then come back for our last session. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's 11.45, five minutes. <laughs>